you know, I think there's a very human nature to risk management that is often overlooked that, you know, you can't, you can't write it into an algorithm or you can't write it into a process, you know, without some human input or discretion that that's absolutely needed in, in this line of work. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to the final episode in this series on systems at risk on smarter markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at ABEX Technologies. Our guest today is Ryan Ingram, Chief Risk Officer at ABEX Exchange. We'll be discussing his perspectives on risk management in the clearinghouse ecosystem, including what's gone right during this tumultuous year and how that ecosystem can be made more resilient for the future. Hello, Ryan. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hi, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having me here today. It's been a really great series so far. You're currently the Chief Risk Officer at ABEX Exchange, and you've also had quite an interesting career in risk management particularly at futures exchanges, spanning work at the CME, ISDA, Goldman Sachs, the Hong Kong Exchange, and the World Federation of Exchanges. Can you start us off this morning by walking us through your career a little bit? And what have been some of the common threads across these roles? You know, there's really been two common themes throughout my experience. Uh, The first is change, specifically regulatory change that was motivated by the famed market events of yesterday's. And then the second would be the corresponding evolution in, in clearing risk management that followed. My more relevant experience starts in my hometown of Chicago um, at the CME. I worked in the risk department of the clearinghouse. And in those days, the clearinghouse is more typically described as the back office of the exchange. And, and funny enough, they even put us down the street at a different building. And suppose we spoke uh, somewhat unfashionable jargon that didn't make sense much of anyone outside the clearing risk community. But um, but hey, in, in retrospect, I kind of like that. In a cheesy way, I found the, the risk management machine pretty interesting. But that all changed in a very dramatic way. After the great financial crisis of, of 2008, it was decided by the G20 that clearinghouses, you know, like the CME and like ICE, um, would play an even more fundamental role in, in mitigating systemic risk. The collective objective was to ensure that the financial markets are better prepared to sustain future market events of this magnitude. And, and just how do we do that? Well, through thousands of pages of regulations, countless consultations, academic white papers, regulatory roundtables. But to me, that was kind of like getting an advanced degree in real time. It was, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, as I got more, more curious and involved in, in both the regulatory and industry discussions, I took an expanded role with ISDA the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, to lead their clearing risk committee, which was on behalf of the largest clearing banks uh, who were members to clearinghouses around the globe. Um, the best part of the job was was conference calls. Uh, we'd never say that today. But during those days, um, the brain power and, and the intelligent swagger, um, what I still fear are the smartest minds in the room, was on full display. And, and the hardest part of the job was actually deciphering their thoughts and their perspectives into concise consultation responses and engagement materials. But yeah, no, after that, it wasn't too long before I joined um, the credit risk department at Goldman Sachs. And as the impact of new regulatory policies for risk and capital were becoming more clear and, and better understood, we initiated kind of, you know, firm-wide efforts to assess capital requirements for cleared markets, to scrutinize the credit exposure that had been parked at clearinghouses. And it was really the time when, when due diligence on clearinghouse uh, risk frameworks went into high gear. 
it was impressive times and, and kind of, you know, ones that hadn't really been a massive priority in, in times past. Like many at Goldman Sachs, I never thought I'd leave the confines of 200 West in New York, but I'd always had an affinity and always, you know, want to take my experience from, you know, the U.S. and Europe out East. And so when the perfect role landed in my inbox from a prior colleague at the CME to join Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing, I, I felt it was an opportunity that, that may never come up again. And so off I went, bags packed, nothing shipped, um, moved really on the plane over to Hong Kong. And my role there was was really just to integrate risk policies from the international community, you know, from from a lot of the evolutions and discussions that took place, you know, in Europe and in the US, and, and then help integrate those into Hong Kong to make it even a in a more attractive kind of international financial center. And I can say with, with, without any doubt, um, the time in Hong Kong has, has definitely been the most impressionable and, and instrumental to my career. But, uh, but hey, let, let me stop there, Dave, and I'm, I'm sure the other experiences will feather in. <laughs> no, that's terrific. It, it's, it's a great tour to start off with. And I know when we've talked in the past, one thing I've always found very interesting in speaking with you is with that experience comes I think a focus on on the the human role of risk management, and you know, often people think of risk management as very calculations and statistical models, and those are all very important. But you know, I think over the course of your career, you've mentioned that you know, there's also been people that have really helped shape your approach through your career. Without a doubt, um, without a doubt. I mean, I when I before I came into call it the risk management community, I hadn't really understood it, and I suppose. For many people, it, it, it is something that, you know, seems kind of arbitrary or seems kind of up in the atmosphere, talking about possibilities of things that may never come to fruition. But, you know, when you're in the room with, with some of these people um, and some of these minds who kind of live it and breathe it and who have seen it in action in the past, you know, your, your whole perspective change. And for me, you know, uh, at each of my companies that I've worked with, um, you know, there's always been some some form of a mentor or someone who left kind of lasting impressions on me, and 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 I feel that that is something that that can never be replaced. You know, you can't you can't really replace those experiences with a machine or an algorithm. You kind of have to touch it and feel it and and understand it and, and live it. And I think that's something that's um, I think becoming increasingly important and, and and somewhat kind of missed in some of the times forward. Could you share one of uh, one of those mentors with us? You know, I would say that one of my best kind of group mentor experiences was, was my time at ISDA. The role was to lead a community of uh, very intelligent minds with very big personalities. Um, there's a friend of mine who, who, a predecessor of mine there, his name's Edwin Budding. Um, who, who was tasked to lead these brilliant minds to a common goal or common objective. Um, and then I think Ed went together with, with our dear friend, Oliver Frankel, who was kind of the, the industry chair, you know, really put things into direct understanding for me and how crisp and how well-reasoned um, they were and, and understood kind of, you know, financial markets risk, clearinghouse risk, the, the role of a clearinghouse you know, it's not just to set margin requirements, it's to kind of ebb and flow and react to market events to ensure kind of the, the continued resiliency of, of the financial market. And, and you know, I, I remember the first time I met Oliver in person, it, it must have been 2013. We, we were in Canary Wharf at a regulatory roundtable to discuss um, the potential impact of a proposal from the BCBS what most of us would refer to as, as Basel III, which would go on to shape the capital requirements for clear derivatives whether it be the capital against positions parked at the clearinghouse or whether it be 
the quantification of capital for commodities, for example, most of us refer to it as, as SACR. I remember it explicitly because I was sat next to, to David Murphy and Miriam Rafi. And during the coffee break, I, I went up to Oliver and, and asked him how he thought the conference was going. He looked at me dead in the eyes and just said, you know, they just don't get it and turned around and walked away. And, you know, it, it was kind of an impressive statement from Oliver at the time, but, you know, it's, it's still, you know, now almost eight, nine years later, and, and we're still talking about the capital requirements against clear derivatives. You know, you see it in the headlines, you see it from a various different bank clearing members who are going through an internal exercise to quantify, you know, the amount of capital it costs per position per client. And you've seen some very unfortunate reactions where some of these clearing members are forced to purely on, on grounds of capital requirements or capital consumption to, you know, cut certain clients from their book. And, and to me, that's kind of impressive foresight. You know, that was that was many years ago for someone who or a group of people who were at that conference who could have the foresight to see, you know, how these proposals from regulators, from academics would actually shake out, you know, many years later. And we're seeing that now. And I think that's for, for me, that stuck with me. And those type of minds and, and those types of people who contribute to the discussion, you know, are, are something that are not easily found. Uh, most people kind of view it as a day job. They don't really have the deep passions um, that, that some of these brilliant minds have. And I, I'm, I'm, yeah, personally, I'm forever grateful for those relationships. Yeah, I know for myself, often I've appreciated the, the mentors more in hindsight than I was aware enough to at the time. And learning from someone else's experiences can be unbelievably helpful in a career. But there's also learning from our own experience. And you know, over the course of your career, there have been quite a few big market events in the industry, from the global financial crisis to the COVID pandemic and beyond. I'm curious if there have been any market events or experiences that have played a large role in shaping your own views on risk management. I came into the industry, Dave, not too long after the, the global financial crisis, which um by many measures, is the most significant in recent times. You know, not only in terms of quantitative metrics, but also because of the results it had. You know, in the future of of risk policy and and regulatory policy. But what what happened not too long after that, in my experience, was the demise of MF Global, and it was the first time that I really understood how risk and default management are meant to work at a clearinghouse. The complexity of that demise and how it impacted the clearinghouse and its role as a central counterparty put all the risk and regulatory frameworks into focus. I mean, my opportunity to be pretty involved um, directly in the default management process has has provided me perspective that directly impacts how I approach risk management to this day. I mean, you can never be overprepared and, and you never want to be underprepared. And so, you know, to me personally, I really feel that a lot of the regulatory and, and industry initiatives are all, are all within the genuine spirit of, of protecting um, us as a financial market. And then, yeah, I mean, of course, you, you move forward to current day events, you know, we've, we've experienced kind of unprecedented uh, volatility and all of which put clearinghouse uh, risk management in the spotlight. And that's not always a bad thing. No, absolutely not. Because for far too many of us uh, who aren't in risk management day to day, we, we don't realize these systems are there and what they're doing until they break. But I'm curious, going back to MF Global, was there something that happened in that default process that surprised you, that left an impression for thinking about risk in the future? Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it was the nature of, of their demise at, at MF Global, you know, how it kind of uprooted some of the accepted norms of risk management and how they op operated. And it really kind of became, you know, it's, it's, it's not the only 
can't remember that's defaulted at a clearinghouse, but it, but it was a unique one. And just by the very just by the very nature of me being involved in you know actually the default management process showed me the importance of of what many people feel are are kind of you know over engineered risk frameworks. You know they exist for the very reason that you know when you have this type of event or this type of market scenario that these things are anticipated. You know there are fire drills, there is planning. You know everyone in the room comes in a war room, and and kind of the community of people that come together is just was pretty impressive to me. Really has kind of been tattooed on my memory, you know, since that time. You know, I, I recall being in the clearinghouse um, all hours of the night um, throughout the full duration of um, the default management process for MF Global and working together with my colleagues in the risk department, but also, you know, the counterparts at the clearing members themselves. You know, we, we have very close contacts with the clearing members, you know, and worked, you know, really in, in true partnership with them, um, not only with constant updates uh, to them, but also to, you know, within our own clearinghouse, you know, clearing icons like Kim Taylor and Pinder Gill. And then also, you know, pretty routine and intimate involvement from the regulators. You know, I, I still find it fascinating how quickly the community came together with a common interest and goal to preserve the integrity of the markets. As the absolute baseline, it was the integrity of the markets, but we we're always kind of measuring and assessing against the amount of financial resources that are available. You know, MF Global is a very unique situation where it wasn't something brought on by the clearinghouse or margin requirements of the clearinghouse. It was entirely different scenario. But, you know, the, the, the default management process is very similar. You know, you want to assess the amount of collateral that you have against the exposures that you have and that come about. And, and those exposures are still evolving by the day. And so it was a constant reassessment of the amount of capital that we had to support the default management process that needed to be done in a very quick, but also very calculated and methodical way. So, you know, that's, that, that, that for me is impressive and, and it still sticks with me. Yeah. And of course, you know, as well over the course of your career, despite all these systems and thinking and experience being put to work, there are still some risk management issues that persist, that continue to seemingly evade a clear solution. We've seen some of those this year uh, with what we've seen in markets. And I'm curious for your perspective, can you tell us what you see as some of the chronic issues in risk management and why are they so hard to resolve? Great question. In my view, I think we always have to remember that there is no single solution. You know, the market characteristics, the market participants, um, the nature of the products, you know, the personality of the products, um, the legal and regulatory frameworks that exist in many different jurisdictions. You know, there, there there will never be a single, you know, defined risk management approach. And I think one of the issues that we continuously face in our industry is that there's a real lack of appreciation, you know, for different means to the same end. You know, for example, what works in the U.S. you know would would never apply one for one to to a jurisdiction, say like Hong Kong. Yes, the rule of law is similar. Yes, they embrace risk management. Yes, they embrace the international principles. But how risk management gets deployed to that market and those types of market participants is not the same as the US or Europe. And so my experience um, is my experience kind of working on risk and reg policy in the US and Europe and Asia has really helped me understand um, you know, the need to maintain a principles-based, you know, kind of outcomes-oriented approach to risk management. You can point to any any number of issues or any number of challenges, you know, noteworthy news bites in the headlines. Um, but until you really understand the nuances and, and how things are applied and, and why they vary, we'd never really have a strong appreciation to to those reasons. And here's an example. I mean, another challenge that that we're faced with 
or maybe just the reality of 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 a cleared market is that there's incredible amount of interdependencies and it's between the financial market the equity markets the derivatives markets the repo market um you really have to appreciate how all these things come together in their own unique way and so you know we've, we've seen a lot of headlines about the intensity of margin calls from clearing houses lately um, however, you know, on the one hand, we need to recognize that risk models react to volatility. That that is their very purpose. And so, the constructive challenge that we face as a clearinghouse or even a cleared derivative industry is that you know we need to be best prepared and best optimized to such reactions. And again, this is where we start to observe some novel solutions emerging. You know, technology solutions that help optimize collateral flows collateral usage, specific asset usage across different clearinghouses. I think that we'll, we'll, we'll see more and more of these trends. You know, it's, it's, I think it's a matter of time, you know, as, as, as the entire industry optimizes to, you know, the realities of the interdependencies that, that we have, you know, among and within the cleared industry. So what we can say is, and what we can observe is that the challenge has, has been analyzed uh, to extensive means. And I think that another parallel to this is, is the emergence of risk governance. And so you see things like business development concerns or challenges or frictions, and then you fit that into the governance process that exists at a clearinghouse. And, and that's where we see the emergence of you know, different committees, you know, participant committees that involve regulators, committees that involve clearing members, and committees that involve their clients. It's through these committees and this kind of governance process that maintain our ability to not only optimize against different reactions and different outcomes, but to reach the outcomes that we need to best reduce the frictions that, that present themselves to us, all within the right spirit of, of risk management. And so, you know, if you ask me, Connor, what's, what's the chronic issue, it's, it's kind of a lack of appreciation, but I, I would like to say that, you know, we've made huge headway in, in, in this area, and it's, it's actually been quite enjoyable to see it happen in different jurisdictions. Yeah, so it sounds like it's not so much about a, a particular solution, but about having the right process and framework and, and people at the table to keep working the solution. It's always that. You know, I think there's a very human nature to risk management that is often overlooked, that you, know, you, can't, you can't write it into an algorithm or you can't write it into a you know, kind of process you know, with, without some human input or, or kind of um, discretion that, that's, that's absolutely needed in this line of work. And I wanted to ask you, because even within the field of risk management, you know, you, you've had a lot of experience within one particular aspect as well, which is you've worked at a number of regulated futures exchanges and clearinghouses. And one of the important roles of the clearinghouse is to act as the central counterparty, the counterparty to every trade done on the exchange. And this is a great risk management tool for all the trade participants. But what special challenges does that create in managing risk for the exchange and clearinghouse, and how are these challenges handled? This is one of the most interesting debates that continuously comes up throughout, you know, industry discussions or regulatory consultations or, you know, flashy headlines in the news. You know, the role of the clearinghouse is not a risk taker. We're we're effectively a risk mutualizer or a risk moderator, right? You know, the catchphrase that you always the bumper sticker for a clearinghouse is, you know. The buyer to every seller and the seller to every buyer and so you know we're not meant to be taking risk ourselves however we are meant to understand the aggregate risk that we have under management at any given point in time such that were the music to stop or were there to be a massive volatility event or a clearing member were to default you know would we have sufficient resources to default manage that portfolio in a way 
that doesn't disrupt the broader market. And that is the real trick. And so, you know, you could say, all right, well, why not over collateralize every position that I have such that I will always have enough money? Then you run into situations such as, you know, margin funding costs, uh, liquidity management costs and frictions. You know, and you've seen it even in the news, you know, certain members or participants in the community, you know, the funding cost is high. And if you look at the aggregate amount of margin posted to clearinghouses, somewhat motivated by post-crisis regulations, you know, it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And so you really, you really have to think about and consider that type of money leaving the, the financial system. Is it for good purpose? Absolutely. Does it make sense to get a more scientific um, calculation on your risk models? Absolutely. And so those types of things, I think, are, are some of the bigger challenges that, that clearinghouses face. And I think it's the right scrutiny. No one's saying that there shouldn't be scrutiny. Um, in many ways, people would suggest that there should be even more margin at the clearinghouse. But there is a very large contingency of members who would feel very differently about that prospect. Right. And we certainly have seen that in the LNG markets this year. Uh, with the funding costs going up on both the absolute price level going higher, the volatility going higher, and that creates a real struggle. And of course, these markets exist. So, you know, the energy material food we need can, you know, get from where it's produced to where it's needed. And so those funding costs are not trivial. But as you said, if it's needed to help manage the risk, there's a, there's a careful balancing that occurs there. Now, the clearinghouse isn't on its own in all this, right? The clearinghouse works with its clearing members, its FCMs, to manage this risk in the futures market for the benefit of the participants. What role do you see the clearing members playing in this ecosystem? A critical role, to be frank. You know, the, the clearing members have long been the intermediary between a very large population of clients and the clearinghouse itself. You know, there are many different ways to approach this. However, one would really need to recognize and appreciate the actual risk management role that a clearing member provides in an intermediated clearing model to a clearinghouse. You know, it's very different than a retail market, um, a derivatives market, even a commodities market, you know, has a different risk profile than equities, for example. And so, you know, having, having a clearing member perform a lot of the kind of risk management services for their clients actually is, is somewhat of a shock absorber for market events, right? If the inspiration were to have a clearinghouse be the risk manager for 10,000, 40,000, 100,000 clients, um, it's, it's somewhat of a different animal than if you were to have you know, clearing members performing some of those risk uh, oversight for their clients. The benefit also of a clearing member is that, you know, they have a single client who may, hey, may be executing trades or, or clearing trades at multiple different exchanges and venues. Their ability to have the purview of their client's exposures across multiple exchanges is very important. A single clearinghouse wouldn't necessarily know all the other activities of individual clients at different exchanges across the world, but a clearing member, you know, likely would. You know, then with that oversight or that insight would be much better positioned than a clearinghouse by definition to better risk assess their, their total client exposure for any given client. And I think that is somewhat overlooked at times. It's a uniqueness of the market. There was no regulation to have an intermediary. It just kind of evolved that way over time, as I would call it kind of a community of clearing. And that, that, I think, is something that we also need to always and forever keep in mind. There are other ways to do it and other ways will evolve. 
um, but it can't be with the sacrifice of, of the risk management framework that, that exists and is provided by the clearing members themselves. Right. And given this role, is there something more that clearing houses need now from their clearing members or perhaps that the clearing members need from the clearing houses? There's always that question of more. Having worked at both a clearing house and a clearing member, you know, everyone always um, wants more. Um, the better question is, is, is what more do you want? And, and when you have more, what, what would one do with it? And so there's an incredible amount of data that's out there um, that's now published by the clearinghouses directly by regulatory mandate in the post-crisis reforms. To my understanding to this day, you know, of, of even though that data is posted, it's, it's somewhat hard to read it in a way that's meaningful to in-house risk management. And so, yes, it gives you kind of point in time statistics, but it wouldn't give you, or it, it would fail to give you kind of up-to-date reactive risk kind of insight. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, there's been an incredible amount of increased collaboration and transparency between the clearinghouse and clearing members. A lot of that comes through the risk governance process that I was referring to before that wouldn't have existed as clearly or as decisively in the past. And so I would say that, you know, we are probably five, less than 10, at least five years into this kind of new framework of massive disclosure and transparency between the clearinghouse and the clearing members. And I think we're still you know, waiting for that to bring better clarity and for it to be um, digested by the clearing members. But I'll just come back to that. You know, if, if there were no clearing members, you know, who, would, who would perform that, that very valuable positive challenge, constructive criticism, contribution of insight um, to, to the clearinghouse? And so you know, there, there, are, there are many flavors of, of benefits that come from you know, this type of model and call it the, the integrated ecosystem or interdependent ecosystem that, that exists between clients, clearing members and the clearinghouse. And so I, I think that will continue to be an important feature and one that I think will become more obvious as, as, as we move forward. Right. And you brought up that you've worked at, you know, clearing members as well as at clearing houses. I'm curious, looking back on your time, you know, working for clearing members, was there an aspect of, of the business that you found particularly challenging? What was always interesting was you have a very small community, um, I think, within a clearing member, a bank, who are tasked to do this type of due diligence and risk assessment at clearinghouses globally. I mean, I remember my time from Goldman where we had a global CCP team in credit risk departments that would be tasked to assess, understand, read the rule book, read the disclosures, understand the risk policies, understand the risk models, understand every intimate detail of a clearinghouse, all in the interest of ensuring that that was a worthwhile counterparty to the bank. And so this was an incredible, a, a monumental task um, that, that still kind of amazes me that Goldman is a clearing member, as well as, as well as all the others, are tasked to do. And so, you know, the, the level of interest and scrutiny on the risk framework of a clearinghouse has probably never been higher, but that's for all the right reasons. On the other side, at, at, a, clearing, at a clearinghouse, you know, the due diligence requests, um, the risk assessment, the disclosures, you know, is, is also a monumental task. You know, how do you provide the right level of insight in a meaningful way that is usable to your community in the joint interest, you know, of your market? And that's, I, dare I say, fun times, but, but these are kind of, you know, you know m monumental times that are happening in real time. Right. And 
I've really been looking forward to this conversation with you in this episode because, you know, when we started this series, as you said, these are, you know, maybe not fun times, but monumental times. We started the series with the observation that between the pandemic, war, supply chain disruptions, economic sanctions, that our energy, commodities, and financial markets and their risk management systems are being tested. And the some are revealing weaknesses and potential points of failure. And I was really looking forward to talking with professionals like yourself to better understand how these critical systems are holding up. So I wanted to ask you, what are you seeing this year that concerns you? And what's the conversation among risk professionals in the industry? It's been very interesting and kind of very, very heightened discussions. Um, there are a lot of people who are very passionate about what's happening from a product side and perhaps don't see what's happening from the risk side. Um, you know, there's a lot of headlines. There's a lot of captivating headlines. And we've all seen them. Um, you know, you see them in the newspaper. You see them on the TV. You see them in, in very specific articles. You know, for, for a clearinghouse, there's, there's no doubt there's been record amount of margin calls at a clearinghouse or even single-day billion-dollar margin calls across their clearing members. And, and yes, that's a lot of margin requirements. And yes, that does produce a lot of liquidity frictions. However, this result wouldn't be entirely unexpected given the volatility of these markets. You know, some of these markets have market events have not been observed before. You know, the intersection of multiple different market events happening together in unison is something that we probably haven't seen to this extent in the past. And so, you know, I, I again, I would go back to what what we referred to before. You know, you 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 it wouldn't be unexpected for a risk model to react the way that it does. And what I think is is actually important is for us to understand, you know, what's gone right in clearing risk management. If you think about the nature of events that have happened, the unprecedented nature of the events that happened. I mean, you have to remember that risk models are calibrated for, you know, extreme but plausible scenarios, you know, hypothetical ones, historical ones. I mean, some of the events that have happened have actually been beyond anyone's anticipation. And that's not just the clearinghouse, that's actually as well the market itself. And so, you know, what 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 concerns me is is sometimes the lack of appreciation for what went right, <laughs> to say it, I guess, somewhat directly. Could we do better? Absolutely. Have we learned? Absolutely. Will we continue to learn? Absolutely. But I think that, you know, if you look at risk systems, and, you know, I just, I just want to take away operational risk and things like that. But if you look at if you think of risk systems as, you know, kind of the preparedness of the risk framework and how it how it navigated and managed through these market events, I actually think it's pretty impressive. You know, there have been some examples of where market events have led to some pretty traumatic happenings at certain clearinghouses. And, and there's probably many more that aren't in the news. But I, I really think that we should also be giving a little bit of appreciation to things that went right. The best thing we can do is for all of us to be, you know, better prepared, to be in better communication, to be better understanding of, you know, how these margin models will react to these type of events. Absolutely. And I think part of why so many things went right is something you've said, that risk is a, a thought process, a philosophy. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit more for us. Like, how do you think of risk management as a thought process and a philosophy? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've, um, I'm very grateful to have had the experience um, that I've had that led me to where I am today. 
being able to participate in industry forums or or even regulatory roundtables, um, you know, closed door industry and academic discussions, you know, you you really have a different perspective that wouldn't be obvious to most people. You know, some of the people that I've been been very grateful to have interacted with over the times past, you know, a lot of a lot of the gentlemen from the Chicago Fed who have kind of been industry stalwarts and have grown up in, you know, the Chicago markets, the New York markets. Our very own Tom McMahon here in Singapore is 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 a constant person who who provides, you know, historical insight on why markets act the way that they act and react the way that they react. You know, it, it is really not kind of a binary approach to anything in the risk management field. It's it's really kind of a reactive and dynamic approach to to events that happen. And I think that that experience or that insight from people who have lived it and seen it from many different ways, you know, kind of leads me to have this philosophical approach in a way to how risk works. I mean, you know, I've spent a lot of time reading a lot of academic papers about the historical collapses of different clearinghouses throughout the course of time. You know, no, no clearinghouse demise, um, and there's only been a small handful of them in, in, in the history of time. You know, none of them have been similar. You know, none of them are the same. The market dynamic was different. The regulatory environment was different. The participants were different. The jurisdiction was different. You know, it's never going to be binary, and, and I hope that it never is. Uh, it would be a lot less exciting if it is. For example, there's there's three typical um, clearinghouses in distress that are are almost always talked about. You know, one was in 1974 in Paris. Another one was in Kuala Lumpur in 1983. And another one was in 1987 in Hong Kong. Each of these were unique. You know, in, in Paris, it was, you know, futures on sugar and cocoa and coffee. Um, in Hong Kong, it was, a, it was a totally different dynamic. It wasn't a, a volatility event. It was actually more about the construct of multiple different entities that formed the exchange and clearinghouse group. Um, you know, in Hong Kong, it was, it was the Hong Kong Futures Guarantee Corporation that fell into distress as it was, you know, in somewhat disconnected to the risk management and disconnected to the exchange group itself. You know, a memorable story of mine um, forever is that um, I, I, when I was working in Hong Kong just a few years back, I invited Bob Cox from the Chicago Fed, who was a long-term active active gentleman out out in the East, um, who had a very intimate knowledge of of that event in Hong Kong. And in fact, he was part of the governance structure of it and was very very well um, involved in it. Um, you know, I had I brought him over to Hong Kong to give a presentation to to all of HKEX, and I would tell you that you know 1987 was a long time ago, and and a good amount of the employees you know hadn't been there, hadn't any awareness of of why that event went down. And so he gave a very fascinating speech to, um, you know, to the employees of Hong Kong Exchange. I think it was very well received, just kind of the history of it. What I can say is that, you know, the, the Hong Kong Exchange of today was nothing like the event that happened back then. It was an entirely different company uh, at that time. And that was before a lot of the modern day clearinghouse constructs, legal structures and regulatory frameworks that existed. But nevertheless, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to kind of see you know, how different dynamics came together in the past and led to, you know, friction events that, that were experienced. And so, you know, I really think that in some ways you need to have kind of an open mind and, and somewhat of a, a nimble mind that can react to events that happen that may present themselves um, that may have never, may have never happened um, in the past. So it sounds like there's still a lot of art with the science and a, a big role for wisdom and experience over uh, equations. 
there's a place for both and that's and that's that that intersection or that confluence of kind of you know quantitative and qualitative and philosophical and academic thinking um you know really do really do intersect in a unique way that that may not be as prevalent in in, in other kind of fields or disciplines of study and as well as wanting to understand um you know what's happened this year and where the concerns are and where the appreciation should be i was also looking forward to this episode cuz i wanted to understand what's being done and what we can do to make these market systems resilient to a future which is likely to be even more uncertain. Um, So I wanted to ask you, what's next for making our risk management systems even better? Fantastic question. Um, I think if I were to use only two words, it would be technology empowerment. You know, the sophistication of technology that exists today is much more advanced than it ever has been. And, you know, you've seen a lot of the incumbent clearinghouses and, and even new clearinghouses like ourselves, you know, desire and seek specifically to base our approaches and our information and our knowledge on technology empowerment. You know, the data has always been there. The type of data isn't specifically new, but the way in which we can consume and analyze this data for meaningful purposes has never been more available or more advanced than it is today. And so I think, you know, as you look across, you know, all of our peers, you know, in the financial market infrastructure world, or even in the financial institution world, you know, it's a topic of the hour, of the week, of the year. And so I think that, you know, as, as we move forward, the continuous embracement of technology whether it be for analytics, it's a little bit less about latency on the exchange side as it would have been in times past. In my mind, of course, I'm biased. I work at a clearinghouse, but in my mind, you know, the technology empowerment on the clearing side of things, the post-trade, the post-trade world, is something that's getting probably a lot of the attention these days. And so, I think when it comes to risk systems, it's it's having the right data available at the right time to help one make kind of informed decisions that that are appropriate for whatever market event may present itself. And I was curious, as you get to the stage in your career where you're becoming a mentor to others, what are what are some of the things you'd want to pass on or help people remember for the future? <laughs> you know, I can never touch the wisdom of the mentors that I've had, but I can only help to kind of guide them and, and show them, you know, some of the the, the passion that, that I felt in talking to some of the mentors that I had, you know, it's something that, you know, it's not just a day job. It's actually, you know, a lot of the risk people, especially in this world, once you get in the right circles of dorks, you know, there's a lot of genius thinking out there and kind of a lot of interesting people um, that you wouldn't, you know, that you wouldn't otherwise know that they just have all this knowledge and perspective sitting in their mind. And I take every opportunity in any corner of the world for whatever conference it may be or whatever dinner party it may be or social event. I wouldn't hesitate ever to jump on a plane just to have, you know, an evening with with some of these brilliant minds. And so I hope that, um, you know, as I go forward and, and kind of, you know, bring that knowledge, you know, pass it forward. Um, I hope that I can have that, that leave some of that same impression on others. Thanks again to Ryan Ingram, Chief Risk Officer at Abex Exchange. We hope you enjoyed the episode. This concludes our series on Systems at Risk. Next week, we'll kick off our next series our Smarter Markets Summer Playlist. For our summer playlist, we're bringing you forward-thinking global leaders in commodities, technology, and finance to discuss where we are midway through this momentous year in markets and where we might be and need to be heading next. Instead of a series organized around a particular topic or theme, this series is more about who we want to be listening to this summer 
It's Beach Reading and a Podcast. We hope you'll join us. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.